Broadway Radio. This is James Marino. Today is January 1st, 2019. Happy New Year. We are going to run a phone conversation that I had with Lindsay Jones, an award-winning composer for film, TV, theater, and a sound designer for theater. His work has been heard in Oscar-winning films, Broadway shows, and in theaters around the globe. Our conversation was recorded on October 6th, so there may be some references to events which have already passed. We will have links to Lindsay's website and social media accounts in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. As we talk about in this episode, you must follow Lindsay on social media. You will be glad that you did. Here's our conversation. Lindsay Jones with us. Thank you for coming back Hello. to Broadway Radio. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure, as, as I briefly talked with you before we started recording, I'm not sure what this is about other than I'm interested to get down and put out to the world how people work in the uh, theatrical business that are not necessarily actors. We have lots and lots of interviews that we've done and other people have done to show how actors get from birth to stage. But how does somebody get from birth to the sound designer, birth to creating uh, original music for a play that... uh, such as you, you happen to have uh, something on the little Broadway right now called The Nap. Yes. Uh, and let's talk about The Nap for a little while. So when did you join The Nap and how did it all come about? Uh, it was really unusual. Um, I I got uh, an email from my agent in, I want to say it was like May, probably. And they he said that um, Manhattan Theater Club was specifically looking for a composer sound designer and they were they were doing this comedy this brand new comedy by richard bean who had previously written one man two governors which was another big broadway success uh from a few years ago and they were specifically looking for somebody who had experience writing original music for comedies um and so they reached out to my agent and said, hey, you know, do you, do you have a, people who would be into that? And then, and he said, well, you should, you should listen to Lindsay Jones. And they, and so I guess, uh, I had done several plays mostly with Robert O'Hara, who I work with quite frequently. And, uh, we've done, uh, mankind and barbecue and, um, uh, booty candy, all in New York. And, um, those are all crazy eccentric comedies and I've written music for each of them. So that, I think that that was sort of how they got in touch with me is they thought, well, this, he, he has written music for comedy before. So therefore that'll be something to do. Uh, he'll be, he, he probably do it. And so, uh, there, you know, this is my third show on Broadway. Um, the other two shows I have done were transfers from somewhere else. I did a, a Time to Kill, which originated at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., and I did Bronx Bombers, which originated at Primary Stages off-Broadway. And uh, this was the first time that anyone had called me and said, we want you to you know, work on this Broadway show starting on Broadway. So I was really, really excited about it. And uh, – so there was a, they said, well, we're going to match you up with Dan Sullivan, who's the director, and you guys can have a conversation 
and uh, and then you can figure out if it's going to work. And then I I couldn't. Dan is such a busy person that I couldn't actually find him for several months. And so eventually they were like, well, you should just go ahead and do it, and we'll figure it out later. <laughs> so um, eventually I got a hold of Dan, and and we had a very short conversation where we talked about the play, and he said, um, you know, the play is really set in. Uh, Sheffield, which is a working class town in England, and the people in this play, they're they're very much from a working class background. They're um, lower middle class English people. And uh, so Dan was like, what are these people? What would they listen to? And we sort of decided that it would be um, kind of hard rock, basically hard rock from uh, the, the 70s and 80s. So what I used as an inspiration for the music for the nap is um, going back to my favorite bands from my childhood that were from England and had that hard rock background. So that's Judas Priest and Black Sabbath and um, uh, ACDC who are from Australia, but in the same, same sort of genre. And then there was all these sort of like um, also ran sort of hard rock metal bands like Saxon and UK and all these other things. So I, I, and you know, I have been a fan of hard rock for my entire life since my childhood. So the thought that I was going to be able to, to write hard rock music on Broadway was just like the most exciting possible thing that could happen to me. Like I, I just, just beside myself with joy. And so eventually Dan was like, yeah, why don't you just write, write hard rock music for the nap? And I was like, ah, this is great. So the whole idea was to write um, hard rock music that had sort of a comic feel, had, that had uh, uh, excitement and energy and felt like it was in a comedy. And that's been my journey into The Nap, which opened a, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm really excited about it. So uh, we talked with you on Broadway Radio back in 2016, a couple of years ago. And at the time, you gave us your basic bio information, but I'll assume that not everyone has listened to every show, which I scold the listeners for. But uh, wow. you uh, you went to the North Carolina School of the Arts for acting, and uh, I did. Uh, how did you get to North Carolina School of the Arts? I actually grew up in Winston Salem, North Carolina, which is um, where the North Carolina School of the Arts is. It's now known as the University of the North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, but but uh, but yeah, I. I grew up sort of being aware of it. And, um, I went to a high school where there at the time wasn't a really serious, uh, drama program. So I did a lot of sort of community theater, um, acting in community theater. There was a theater called the little theater of Winston Salem. And I spent all my time there just trying to be in plays and trying to do things. But I was always aware of the school, uh, as I was growing up. And then when it, came time for me to go to college. I thought, well, uh, and I was not a, I was not a very good student in high school. I was just not a very good student period. And, uh, and I thought, well, I'll just give the school of the arts a shot. So I, I auditioned for them and managed to uh, get into their acting program. Thank goodness. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, so yeah, then I spent the next five years at the North Carolina school of the arts. Uh, and so 17-year-old Lindsay Jones, you might have, um, uh, you know, partially answered this just now that you weren't a great student, but did you – what was the 
10-year view, 20-year view? Was it uh, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and uh, chicks, or what was your... <laughs> no, I was I was just hoping to be able to sign a check. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I think um, what I wanted at that time when I was 17, I had two major occupations in my, preoccupations in my life. The first was music. Um, I was playing in a rock band um, in my, with a couple of friends in high school, and I really wanted to continue doing that somehow. And I also really wanted to be an actor. Uh, and, I, and I really just wanted to be like a working actor. Um, you know, just, uh, uh, I, I didn't have, I mean, everyone has dreams of being a star, but I think I really was, uh, wanting to just work and be, and, and have artistic challenges. So those are the two things that I was, was trying to get at when I was 17 and hoping for the best. Did you have, uh, did you know any working actors? Did you have any role models, uh, either actors who are in the arts per se? Well, I, I had these people that I worked with at the community theater in Winston-Salem, um, and that was about it. I don't, I, I didn't really have any working actors. It's, you know, it's a really interesting thing because I was just talking about this recently with uh, this this class I'm teaching. I, I, throughout my entire life, have never really had any kind of artistic or career mentors. Um, it's just, I, I, it just has never happened. And, um, so as a result, I've always sort of had to just kind of find my own way, which I think is how I've gotten to the place that I've gotten to is because it's entirely of my own invention. But, um, and, and it's also a main reason why now at this point in my life, I'm really interested in mentoring others and I'm working either, you know, through teaching in education or, in uh, creating uh, things uh, that are organizations, working to create organizations with others, such as the Theatrical Sound Designers and Composers Association, uh, which I'm part of, um, and the Collaborator Party, which I'm also part of. Uh, these are things that I'm trying to do to bring about a greater sense of community in the theater community and also to sort of pass along uh, open up channels uh, of communication to pass along knowledge to the next generation of theater artists that are coming out there so that they hopefully don't have to make it all up like I did. <laughs> um, that's, you know, I think that's what I've been focusing on lately. But yeah, at the time, um, you know, I was just living in a fairly, uh, in a medium sized town in North Carolina. Um, and I just really wanted to make some kind of impact in the arts. And at that point, I wasn't even really, I didn't really have that much of a plan. And you uh, alluded to your teaching now. So tell us about uh, this teaching thing is, this formalized teaching thing is sort of new to you, isn't it? It is. It's totally new. And um, it's, I'm really enjoying it, actually. It's very uh, strange. I uh, was contacted over the summer by the School of the Arts, who I, you know, now, uh, many years later, um, I have this nice association with. They, I've been down there several times to teach master classes, and, and they they had a situation where their uh, teacher um, of composition for sound designers, that teacher had passed away, 
uh, suddenly and um, they needed someone to teach his class. And they said, would you be willing to? And I, I really wanted to help out uh, the school. And also I wanted, you know, it seemed like a nice opportunity. So I just sort of jumped in and started uh, teaching uh, composition to uh, sound designers at the North Carolina School of the Arts. And since then, and it's kind of crazy. I, I've had other schools be in contact. Um, I'll be teaching master classes uh, next month at the University of Illinois. Um, I'm going to be doing something at Chapman University in California. Um, and hopefully I'm going to have some type of association with the uh, University of California in San Diego uh, later this year. So it's, it's just – it's one of those things that I had absolutely – um, no direction in trying to get there, but somehow suddenly like here I am, I'm, I'm part of the education network. And it's very, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> Most of us that get contacted by our uh, universities are looking, the university is looking for money as an alumni to donate back right. to it. But you, you've uh, achievement unlocked. There it is. You know, they're like, we want to pay well, you to teach. <laughs> It's true. And the funny thing is, for the longest time, I think, and they've never said this to me, I'm totally making this up what I'm about to say, but I think I was actually that school's worst nightmare. Because if you think about it, I, I went to school in one discipline, which was acting, and then I wound up sort of being successful in another discipline that they also teach, which is design, but I didn't take any design classes. So now here I am. Uh, a person who has achieved a certain amount of success in design, but I, I, I'm like, I, I'm just a draw. I'm an acting alumni to them. So <laughs> I, for a long time, I think they were like, what do we do with this? But I think they, they, they we've managed to figure all that out. And now um, I'm having a really nice uh, partnership with the school and it's been, it's been going great. I'm really thrilled about it. Yeah, you think about other schools like the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. What do they do with Trump? You know, they're like, <laughs> do they claim yeah. it as a benefit? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a question we're all asking. What do they do with Trump? Um. <laughs> On a more serious note, um, uh, do you have siblings, family uh, that was in the arts or anything like that? Um, I do have siblings. None of them are in the arts. Um, uh, yeah. What were your parents do? Only my father is a, uh, a uh, he's a consultant. He's a fundraising consultant, and he does help many nonprofit organizations, including arts organizations, raise money uh, for capital campaigns. That's oh, what he does. Um, my mother uh, is now retired uh, and sort of is a part-time. A French teacher, but um, she used to work for the Chamber of Commerce in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and uh, before that worked for an insurance agency. So um, they, they definitely encouraged me to be artistic, but I don't think either of them – I'm not sure either of them necessarily were thinking like, oh, this, this is a good idea for you to go into the arts. Like I think they were <laughs> a little bit like <laughs> – I remember my mother at one point saying, like, are you sure you don't want to be a lawyer? It's kind of like acting, except, you know, you get paid for it. And I was like, well, I, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I, I cut you off about the siblings. Do you have siblings? I do. I have, uh, I have my brother uh, who works for um, Bowman Gray School of Medicine in 
Winston-Salem. And then I have uh, two half-brothers and one half-sister. Uh, and were you the, where did you fall along the line? Are you the oldest, youngest, in the middle? I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest. You're, so you were blazing trails for them. That's Yeah, <laughs> yeah for better or for worse, yes, indeed. That was me. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, when we talked to you a couple of years ago, uh, I asked you where you were based, and you said Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago. Yeah, um, yes. And so now, have you expanded to a fourth, or have you constricted, or how, where do you, when somebody says, hey, Lindsay, where are you from, what do you say? It's challenging. Uh, I, I, you know, it, and I get that a lot where people are like, so where do you live? And I'm like, well, okay, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> essentially, it works like this. Um, my, my <laughs> I know, right? It's a fairly easy question. I don't know why I'm You're so like, I live in the Admiral's Lounge? <laughs> I do. I, you know what's really funny is when my children were younger, uh, they uh, they actually did think I lived at the airport for a while. Like there was a period of time there where they were like, are <laughs> you, you going Tom back Hanks. to your house at the airport? <laughs> I know. Um, so the uh, so the story of how, where I actually live is this. Um, my wife – She's a screenwriter and playwright, uh, Jamie Pacino, and she uh, writes for television. So she has to live in Los Angeles. And so she lives there, and my two kids live there as well. Um, But I very rarely work in Los Angeles. Um, I would say maybe once or twice a year if I'm lucky. Uh, Most of the time I'm working in – New York or Chicago or, or other regional theaters in America. Um, so I'm pretty much constantly on the go. So the only time I'm in Los Angeles is when I'm not working. And that is generally not that often. So um, I'm usually still on the go. Now, I originally, when I my career started, I started in Chicago. And I still have my apartment in Chicago. And I go back there to work all the time. So I have a residence there. But I also work in New York a lot, and I've sort of, you know, over the years had different residents, different residencies in New York as well, just trying to, you know, live there and make it in New York theater. So basically, I, I, the policy that I have tried to pursue is that I'm basically like Beetlejuice, right? <laughs> like you just say my name three times, and I will appear. That's uh-huh. really what it's about. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, I technically live everywhere. Uh, your accountant must hate you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have it's to file worst. five or six state tax returns. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, I'm their least favorite guy. Um, also, because I'm a worker, I, I make less money than virtually anybody else who goes in there. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know. <laughs> It's uh, it's it's what it is. It's a living. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you can be at Oregon Shakes one one day and down at La Jolla and or uh, someplace else yeah. in the Southern California, then be at North Carolina and New York and other major regional theaters in the middle. Um, uh, last time you were on Broadway Radio, we talked about uh, you did Suburbia in Chicago. Was was that your first professional sound and music design job? 
It was. Yeah, it was the very first thing. Um, and the whole thing was just this incredibly fortuitous accident. Um, I, you know, I had been working in Chicago at that point as an actor, and I was playing in a rock band at that point. And I had a, a friend who was in a local theater company, and he said, hey, um, we're doing this production of Suburbia, and we were kind of wanting to have a lot of loud rock music in it. Do you think that's something you could do? And, uh, and I said, yeah, I could do that. And he said, okay, great. You'll probably need to do the sound design as well. Is that okay? And I was like, yeah. And I didn't really know what that was, but I was just like, sure, I can do that. Um, and so from there, uh, you know, I went about creating rock music and, um, doing what I thought was sound design, just sort of making it up. And lo and behold, um, the show opened and it was a big success. And, um, suddenly I started getting all these calls from people saying like, well, would you do the sound design for our show? And I thought, well, I'll just do this until these jobs dry up and then I'll go back to acting, um, which was always my intention. And that was almost 25 years ago now. And I've just been, it went from being this part-time thing that I do to this full-time thing. And now I, I'm fortunate enough to, you know, be able to travel the country and work in theaters all over the place doing it. And I, I really love the job. I really love it a lot. It's, it's endlessly exciting and fun. Um, and I'm so glad that I get to do it. Let me ask you an amateur question from from my perspective, not knowing much about sound designers. Uh, do sound designers often write original music, or is this kind of a an anomaly with you, or or fewer people do that than I didn't know that sound designers really write original music for productions. There are some that do it. Uh, I mean, you know, I would say. Um, there are many sound designers who do not write music there, are, but there, there are a, a fair number that do. Uh, and I think that that is growing, uh, daily. I think that, I, I think that as more sound designers enter the field, um, th- those designers I find are usually interested in writing music, which is very, which is great. Um, because I think it's another way for sound designers to really have an artistic impact on the, on the production and you know what it bring can bring more stuff to the table. Um, so it, I I would say it is a it's a trend that is uh, is growing for sure. And uh, you had mentioned that you were in a rock band. Where, was your rock band uh, doing originals? Were you doing covers? Uh, you know, you mentioned the loud. Uh, yeah, we were originals. We were doing all originals. Uh, we do uh, you know like a couple of covers, but not uh, that you would be able to recognize them. Um, but we, uh, we, yeah, we, my band, uh, I was in, my band was called the nubile Thangs, And, um, we were a full-time band from 1990 to 2001. And then we have, you know, gotten together. Um, we usually play once or twice a year still 20 some years later. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, it was all originals. We put out uh, we put out four albums. Um, we toured the U.S. number of times. We were, we played on television shows, and you know we at the time it was we were really making a concerted effort to try and be a professional rock band. And uh, I would say we got to the place of probably semi professional rock band. I would say. <laughs> 
but, you know, uh, constant spinal tap reference? Yes, indeed. Many, many. <laughs> we definitely, we definitely open for our fair share of puppet shows. Oh, you know, could you do me a favor and please adapt Spinal Tap for Broadway? I don't. Know oh man, I... what I wouldn't give to do that. That would oh, be amazing. I yeah, I, think, I can't believe it's not been done. I think... Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, and it's not like those guys. I mean, Michael McKeon appears on Broadway fairly regularly, so I feel like yeah. he's you know you've got people ready to go. <laughs> I I don't. I actually I wish I knew the answer to that. I would be so thrilled to adapt any sort of rock thing that would show up on Broadway like that. Anything like that, I'm totally interested in. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to Bat Out of Hell. I mean, if we're going to have a jukebox musical, Jim Steinman, you know. Uh, yeah. That could be really good. It could be a big train wreck. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it come in from London. You know, um, I, I took my children last week to see um, – Ain't Too Proud to Beg at the Amundsen here in Los Angeles. And um, there was a big poster for that Bad Out of Hell musical outside of the Amundsen. And my kids, who have no reference to Bad Out of Hell at all, were like, what is that? And I was like, because <laughs> it's the, the cover of Bad Out of Hell, yeah. which, of course, is a little terrifying. And um, I was like, oh, it's a musical. And they're like, is it like a really scary musical? And I'm like, well, I don't know if it's that scary. And they're like, the they're like the poster's scary, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe it is then. So, well, yeah, I'm curious to see as well. Well, I, I'm wondering if Phil Rizzuto is going to get a Broadway credit posthumously. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Uh, so, tell me about. Um, so, you wrote originals for your rock band. Uh, yeah. Do you remember how old you were or what it was you sat down and wrote your first song? Was it on a piano? Was it on a guitar? Was it just uh, on a piece of paper? Or, You know, that's a great question. Gosh, I don't know. I, I would say, um, you know, I've, in one way, I've always been writing songs from the time I can remember. And it, the thing is, I'm, I'm totally untrained as a professional musician, uh, like in other words, I've never really had any music lessons. So, uh, and I don't really write things down. Um, I just compose everything in my head, um, which is what I've always done. Uh, so that's, I would say I was writing some kinds of songs, even when I was a small child, the, the first songs that I wrote that I would give to other people to play was probably when I was like 12. Um, I sort of started taking up the bass guitar because a friend of mine who lived down the street from me had a guitar and a bass guitar and a drum set in his basement. And he, he, my, my friend played guitar and he had another friend to play drum. So I just picked up the bass and started trying to figure it out. Um, and so that's when I first started writing songs for you know, people to other people to hear that weren't just songs for me to listen to in my head. It was, um, it was around that I would say. And, um, and they were just, you know, I was just trying to emulate rock songs that I had heard on the radio for a long time. And, uh, yeah, you know, I basically, that was my, that, 
that was the beginning of sort of my rock band experience. It's like just how do you write a good three, three and a half minute rock song? So when you heard it in your head, did you hear the uh, for those about to rock, we salute you type of things that the full on uh, everything going on? Or did you hear, you know, the beginning of a melody line? You know, it's funny. I usually hear multiple things in my head at once. And that's that's something that has never changed. What's really there's I mean, there's this thing, there's this ethereal part of my process of writing music, particularly when I'm writing music for theater, that is I'm watching dramatic action. You know, I'm watching people do things on stage and um, the music just appears. It's just there and I hear it. Um, and it's just an inspiration of what I'm seeing in front of me. Um, and I, you know, it's interesting coming from an acting background. I think that has a lot to do with how I write music because, you know, in acting training, um, what, what they tell you is that the basis of all acting is about, um, being in the moment, listening and responding, uh, honestly, responding to what's being given to you, you know? So it's really about listening, receiving and responding. And that is kind of my composition process, which is that I, I listen to the actor's performance. I see it, I receive it. And then I can automatically generate a musical response that supports that performance. Um, and that, that's kind of how I do it. And it's, I've never fully figured it out and I kind of don't ever try to figure it out. I just sort of go with it. And a lot of what I do is based on my instincts and so far it's worked out pretty well. So, um, I was, I saw the nap last week, um, and I sat down in the theater and I knew it was a play and it, and it was about billiards or uh, snooker in, yeah. in uh, Europe. And uh, I did not expect to have this really loud music hit us at the top of the show as the curtain was going up. And I thought to myself, I instantly snapped into producer mode and said, wow, I didn't. I bet you they didn't plan to buy those to rent those speakers for this pr production because <laughs> it was <laughs> it was um did you going into this did you say to the uh producers hey you know this is not going to be your typical uh eight person sound budget for a play uh you know okay you would be surprised by this but the majority of the system that I use is that Actually, that is the repertory system of of that theater of then it's, and, and system. it's wow. owned by Manhattan. Yeah, it's that's Manhattan Theater Club system, which uh, was you know created and designed in the last couple of years. And I mo I certainly modified it to do specific things to make it um, more conducive to our production. But that's uh, I would say seventy percent of that gear is is the house gear and. Wow. Uh, and so I, I was quite thrilled. At it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think 
people go there and use it like I used it, but, uh, but it's, but it's there. Um, and I, you know, I will tell you this. I, when I wanted to do sort of loud rock music, uh, for the show, there was definitely a part of me that was like, Oh geez, I sure hope everybody's okay with this. I hope like I, I, you know, when you're doing something and you're creating music, there's always a part of you that's like, gosh, I sure hope everybody likes this. I sure hope everybody's okay on the same page with this and that somebody's not going to show up. It could be anybody, the producers, the playwrights, the director, anyone could walk in and be like, ah, this is, this is wrong. What are you doing? You know, like you always have that, that fear that you, that you're wrong. Um, but for them, you know, everyone at Manhattan theater club was unbelievably supportive. And, uh, when I, when I saw the tagline that they were using as the ads, uh, the slogan for the ad, which is the, the Broadway comedy with balls. And I thought, all right, well, this may not be that bad. This could be fine. Right. If they're, if they're promoting it as a show with balls and I'm creating music that hopefully has some balls, then in theory, I'm going to be okay. But, but in fact, truly everyone has been, um, supportive on that show. Uh, the, the producing team, the production people, everybody has just been great. They've been so supportive and I, I had the best time working there. Oh, that's great to hear. And so the nap, uh, did, did, were you handed a final sort of 95% their script when you first started working on it? Or was it kind of a rough idea that you got to participate with Richard Bean in the creative process and while putting it together? Um, I, I participated a little bit with it. Um, Richard and I certainly <clears throat> interacted in terms of music choices. Um, I know that they did a significant amount of work on the play. I mean, the play had already been a successful play uh, when it was done originally uh, at the Crucible Theater in Sheffield, uh, in England, and and it had done well there. But you know, um, snooker is almost totally unheard of in the United States. Um, I mean, no one knows what it is. And then on top of that, you know, it, the play is all of these working class folks in Sheffield with um, you know thick accents and uh, a lot of um, you know. There's a lot of British humor that doesn't necessarily translate to American humor. And so, um, I know that, that, uh, Richard and Dan Sullivan and the cast worked extensively together to sort of modify things so that it would be, um, most effective for American audiences. So the play has definitely gone through, uh, a lot of changes. I mean, I think they're, they're good changes and they're not like, I don't think like they didn't like cut a scene out of an act or anything, but it was really just about, um, you know, giving the play every possible chance to, to land on American audiences. Uh, putting back your sound designer hat on, uh, what doesn't the general public know about sound designers? What is it that is kind of the black box that, uh, that sound designers are responsible for that we have no concept of? Well, okay, that's a really great question. Um, you know, well, first of all, being a sound designer, you're basically responsible for everything the audience hears in the theater. Um, 
So that's your responsibility in a nutshell. Um, and that can span everywhere, everything from technical requirements, speaker placement, microphone placement, um, you know, how cables are run, all of this really mundane stuff. But then it also requires a tremendous amount of artistic sensibility when you're coming to, um, uh, you know, uh, soundscapes, creating realistic environments, um, mixing voices in a way so that it feels natural and not, you know, forced to what I some do a lot, which is create, um, music and, you know, music is the emotional context of a play. It is the thing that allows us to sort of see the performance and have its truest meaning expressed because the music allows us to see it within that context. So I think sometimes what people don't see about sound design is there's a tremendous amount of artistry and real thought um, and real collaboration that goes into the job. And I think in, in, you know, people who have experienced theater for a long time think of sound design as, as strictly a technical job, but it, it really isn't like that anymore at all. It's, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of detail and truly a lot, lot of really careful and considered thought that goes into sound design now that, um, that I think makes it uh, a huge artistic contribution to the, the overall theatrical process. A lot of people may mistake the sound designer for the board op. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. You know, that happens very often. Uh, so like, you know, we'll talk about this in the case of, uh, of this conversation. The Nap is playing on Broadway, has uh, two shows today, a matinee and an evening, and you are in Los Angeles. So obviously you are not there running the board. So uh, Absolutely not. <laughs> so what's your uh, – how do you communicate with the various team that is part of the running crew of the show to keep your original vision intact? Do you go back and revisit the show if it's a long-running show? Um, and how do you communicate? Uh, do you run the board during – previews or some sort of tech rehearsals to kind of get in the same groove as the people who are going to take it over? Or how does that work in your case? So what I do is I am the creator of the material. And I'm also what I am deeply involved in is programming how that material is uh, going to be used in, in the run of the show. So for example, um, all of our recorded music and sound effects in, in the NAP are all played through a program called QLab, which is a show control playback system, which allows us to be able to, to select exactly what sound files are going to be played when, at what volume, and in from what location. Um, and there's more to it than that, but that's essentially it. Is It's a computer program, and it is... Ultimately, the person who who fires those cues at the direction of the stage manager, um, the stage manager says go, and they you know they hit play is is really just the press of a button. But the work 
that comes before the press of the button, which is the careful programming of all of that material so that it's the exact right level, um, right file, right location every time. That's something that I'm deeply involved in. Um, and I, I consider that, that to be a part of my design process, which is the part where we get in the theater and I mix, I pre-mix everything in the inside of the show control computer so that it sounds exactly the way I want it to sound so that when it's triggered during the show, the audience will always have the same experience. When I first got into sound design, um, that kind of stuff didn't exist. I, I got in at a time, well, you know, it, originally there were reel-to-reel tape players. Um, sometimes you had cassette players. Sometimes you had CD players or mini-disc players. And there was no way to program in a computer what a level was. So you had to have a person there that you would say, okay, for this particular cue, you're going to set the volume level at this thing. You're going to set the output at this thing. You, And they would have to manually set up everything. So there was a lot of training and education that went into every sound engineer who received any of my design work because I, I needed them to, you know, fulfill absolutely every necessity of how it was going to be played. But now I'm able to have a lot more control over that and just program it myself in a computer, um, which as a designer, I find, you know, a little more comforting because I know unless there's a computer problem, it's always going to be the same and, and I will be able to sleep at night uh, and not worry about whether or not something happened. But once the show opens, essentially, um, you know, I, I, the stage manager has been trained on when exactly the cues are supposed to be called. And the sound, the sound operator has been changed, uh, trained on exactly what, how to mix levels and also how to, you know, fire the correct sound cues at the right time. And so, and I, I'm very fortunate, you know, I mean, um, the NAP has a fantastic stage manager, fantastic stage management team and, a, uh, a great sound engineer and sound team there as well. So, um, I, I fully trust them. So yeah, I'll totally go back and watch the show and, you know, I would, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it again, but, um, but I'm not – I don't spend my nights here in California thinking like, oh, gosh, I hope the show's okay. Like I, no, I know it's going to – I know it's in very good hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's going to be great. In the nap, there's a number of um, uh, mobile phones being used on stage. Uh, they seem to be uh, – are they actually ringing themselves? Or, you know, you had a very funny post on social media about a phone ringing a couple of weeks ago, and I, I had to wonder to myself – was that maybe in reference to the nap and how if something doesn't happen on the board correctly, you have a backup system that, and you have a backup for the backup and things like that? Why don't you tell us about that a little bit? So actually, the social media post is about another thing, but I'll just talk about the nap very briefly. There are phones that uh, ring in the nap, cell, a number of cell phones that make noises, either text noises or um, they ring. Um there are programs that exist that allow you to send a signal to a, let make the phone ring, uh, the actual phone ring itself. I personally find those programs to be less than 100% reliable, so I don't usually re deal with those. In the NAP, what happens is I hide little speakers 
all over the set where the actors are going to be when the sound makes a noise, when that phone's supposed to make a noise. Um, and then I sort of, I do a little bit of an audio illusion. I trick you into thinking that the phone is ringing, but usually there's a speaker within short proximity of where they're standing. And that, that's actually making the noise. Um, the social media post though, that I was talking about, is actually about a completely different show. And this is less of an issue now in 2018 than it used to be, you know, many years ago or even a few years ago. Um, I was designing a show called The Roommate by Jen Silverman, and it's currently playing at the Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. Uh, it's directed by Tracy Brigden. And in that show, there is an old school cordless phone, not a cellular phone, mm -hmm. but a, a, yeah. a, a landline cordless phone that we all used to have. Um, and that phone has to ring a number of times throughout the show. Now, with a cordless phone, what you can do is you can run a phone cable to the base of that cordless phone, and then you uh, you can get a device. It's called a telecue. Essentially, it's a it's a voltage generator. So you press a button, and it sends the exact exact same amount of voltage that would be sent by a a, a traditional phone call going through a landline. So you can ring the phone manually just by pressing this button and, it, and that actually does use the ringer of the actual phone um however just like anything in theater there things can go wrong and so one night uh during the roommate um there was a loss of voltage somehow we think it was the cable that was running to the phones so the phone didn't ring, <laughs> which is always, which is your sound designer's nightmare. There are two sound designer nightmares. The first is the phone's supposed to ring and it doesn't. The second is the phone rings, the person picks up the phone and the phone doesn't stop ringing. That's the other one. It's the, <laughs> the worst sound designer of all time nightmare. But in this case, the, so the phone didn't ring and so we, we decided to implement this backup system in case, which is again, hiding a speaker near where people are standing and making them think, well, the phone is ringing. So, so you have to have this incredibly complicated system of like, okay, if you press the button and the button doesn't work, uh, then you, you immediately have to jump over to plan B, which is that you have to fire a recorded sound cue. How are you going to be able to fire a recorded sound cue quickly? So, um, in my case, what I do is I put a, uh, uh, the sound of a phone ringing on a hotkey, which is the ability for it to be assigned to any button on a keyboard. I choose the letter B, which is B is for backup. And then, and, and that will ring the phone repeatedly. And then when I want the phone to stop ringing, as in the person has picked up the phone and you don't want it to keep ringing, I, I would hit the letter M on the keyboard because M stands for mute. So I assign these two things. And I, the last part of this is that you want the sound engineer who is going to be harried because the thing doesn't work and they have to jump to the backup system. And they have to remember all these things they have to do. So how do you remember the letters B and the letter M? So you 
you say, okay, if the phone craps out, all you're left with is BM. And that is how we <laughs> came up with this backup system to ring the phone. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. It, it's, uh, it, it's like the prop master's nightmare that the gun doesn't fire or the gun's not on oh, the table. Oh, yeah. That's you the know? Worst. <laughs> Right. That's the sound designer's nightmare, too, because if the gun doesn't fire, guess what? There has to be a backup gunshot, and that's a recording cue. <laughs> so that's a whole other thing. I, believe me, that's my nightmare as well. <laughs> See, we're all, you know, uh, theater is collaborative. You know, you know, it's it. In film, you're just back to one, and somebody gets fired. You know, but in theater, yeah. you got to keep going. <laughs> you got to keep going, no matter what. <laughs> so uh, you alluded to it a little bit, but let's uh, get into a little bit deeper. Uh, what kind of changes have you seen in the last ten years? Um, I guess maybe Broadway. Uh, is it true that maybe Broadway you get to do the coolest things, or is it, or are you getting to do most cutting edge technology at Oregon Shakes or some other place? You know, it's it's an interesting question because um, it really depends upon the show. Um, you know, the, there can be challenges that can come from anywhere. I mean, the nice thing about working on Broadway. I mean, there are many things I like working on Broadway. And if there's anyone listening who would like to hire me to work on a Broadway show, please feel free. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the nice things about Broadway is that there's there's usually a larger dedicated budget. Um, they're open. They, they want to – producers of Broadway shows generally do want to try to do things that are exciting, that will engage the audience in, in ways that are unusual. Um, and so that people really feel like they've gotten their money's worth to see it, the show. Um, and that's totally understandable just because the price of a Broadway ticket is, is expensive. Um, so you definitely want the audience to walk out feeling like they really had a great time. Um, and they saw something unusual, but there's also a lot of innovation in off Broadway and regional theaters as well. I think that, um, even in small theaters, there's a lot of innovation, although it's on a smaller scale, because I think I think theater makers have figured out that in 2018, there is a tremendous amount of comp- competition for people's attention. There is a they have mm-hmm. many options now. And um, so. What I see is more and more people really trying to break out of what they normally do, you know, and do things that are unusual or exciting or makes makes theater a can't miss event so that they can say is they can really bring people in to see something exciting. Um, And I mean, I really I really do believe in the in the. The power of theater and the power of assembling an audience in a room and a, uh, actors on stage telling a story and an entire audience agreeing to this, um, this social contract of we're going to sit in this theater and these actors are just going to tell us a story in the same way that it has been told for thousands of years. Um, there's, I mean, I don't think the, the art of theater would have endured this long unless there wasn't something really special about it but 
more and more technology plays a part in ways of telling the story and ways of communicating with an audience. And I think that's, that's part of what I find really exciting about being a designer in theater right now is you'll get questions all the time of like, well, what if we tried this? And I will just have to be like, I've never done that before, but let's see what happens. Let's see if we can figure it out. So, and that, that part's really exciting. That part of trying to just figure something out that you have, have no idea if it's going to work or not. Um, <laughs> that's really, that, that's probably one of the most exciting parts of the job is when I'm handed that. Um, on the nap, there was a thing where um, this ultimately didn't make it to the opening night of the show, but it was a really interesting challenge. So, so in the nap, there are two actual matches of Sucre that are played in the show. Uh, these are, these are real matches. In other words, the actors are legitimately playing snooker on stage. Um, and the director said to me, we were sitting in rehearsals and he, he said, I'd like to have an audience reaction, a recorded audience reaction for every single shot that happens in the play. Uh, so when they're making things or missing things, that there's an audience reaction that indicates it. Um, and at first I was like, oh, sure, that's no problem. I've got lots of audience reaction sounds. But then I quickly realized, well, wait a minute. Snooker is still a game of skill. And even though we've all agreed that we think we know how the game's going to go, it doesn't always go that way. Um, and that frequently happens in the nap where the agreed upon plan of how the game's going to happen, it just doesn't go that way they they miss a shot or they make a shot they didn't want to make um and so then it's like well now what right like what do we do if the thing goes completely differently than we thought so in terms of audience reactions recorded audience reactions i was like i need to be able to have a completely modular and flexible system by which i can have the correct audience reaction to whatever happens when a ball is shot and no one's going to necessarily know what the outcome of what that shot's going to be until it actually happens. So what I did was I took a, a touchpad surface. There are these touchpads that are basically little tiny buttons and they're eight across and they're eight down. And so I would, I got a bunch of uh, cues of people cheering, people applauding, people saying, Ooh, and people saying, ah, and people saying, oh, right, all different things that audiences would do while watching a, a snooker tournament. And then I essentially sort of lined them up in terms of their, um, their intensity, their passionate intensity behind each thing. So, for example, I would go – I'd have, okay, here are cheers one through eight. Cheer one is the least excited cheer. Cheer eight is the most excited cheer. And so then I went to the sound engineer and I said, okay, so if they make a shot, you're going to factor in how difficult the shot was, where it was in the sequence. So like if they missed, if they miss one shot and they make it, that might have a certain level of intensity of applause. But if they miss three shots and then they make it, the, the applause is going to be larger because the audience will be more invested in them making the shot. 
So you really have to break down the psychology of a crowd in order to figure this out. And so then I said to him, like, okay, you have to follow the story of this snooker game. And based upon where they are, how many, what their shot count is, and how difficult the shot is, you have to make a decision in real time of like, okay, this shot is a number five applause, or this shot is a number two o. Um, and so we created this entire system that was uh, um, that had to be triggered every night by the the sound engineer, who thankfully was really game to give this a try because it's um it's a deeply challenging thing. So we worked on this for a while. Ultimately, we decided to not use it in favor of just having the real audience respond or, or not. Um, but it was a really interesting thing. And it's something I don't think I could have done more than a couple of years ago because the technology didn't exist really to make it happen. That is really interesting. The, the, you, in the nap, there are two actors who act as, uh, TV commentators, um, yeah. And uh, describe this this snooker game as it's preceding the two different ones that you've uh, mentioned. Uh, uh, they have a whole unique sound to them that is very different than the live theater sound. So did you have to build a sound booth for them or just uh, did you use it by using different mics and different filters in the mics or how did that happen? They are they are in kind of a not a soundproof booth, but they're in kind of an enclosed area off stage. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, we we've deliberately uh, we've given them microphones that make them feel very much like they're in a studio. And they I've also instructed them to be as close to the mic as possible, so that because what and what's so amazing about, about their delivery, what I find so incredibly hilarious is. Um, because snooker is a game ultimately about concentration. Um, it's, it's kind of like golf in that way, in that, mm-hmm. you know, they really remind very, me of golf commentators. Yeah. So it's very important that in the moments when they are commenting on action that is very quiet and simple, that they also be able to talk unbelievably quietly and still be heard because that, that's how they would do it in real life. That's the same thing as they would talk quietly as the person was making the shot. So we really cranked those mics up as much as we could in terms of volume, but we also did a lot in terms of working with the tone of the microphone so that they really, it, it, it feels almost like someone is literally whispering in your ear in those microphones. That's the idea that we wanted to have with that is if you were super close to those people. This is uh, tangential to your area of uh, the nap, but uh, it sounded very extemporaneous. Their their banter it, is it scripted or is it uh, is it tightly scripted or just generally scripted? I know it has to flow along with the game, which you can't predict. Right, that's true. So there are parts of it that I think are scripted. There and and that script was sort of that script was developed with the two actors. Um, who are Max Gordon Moore and Thomas J. Ryan, um, who are geniuses. They're really, really funny. And uh, so they work with Richard to develop certain parts of it. But then, yes, you're absolutely right. As soon as the game goes off, if the game does not follow its perceived plan of how it's supposed to go, they still need to be able to comment on it as if they're you know, watching a real game because that's what the announcers would 
do. So they have, they've developed a lot of one-liners, but then ultimately this is the magic of live theater, which is you never know what's going to happen. I know one night in previews, one of the snooker players knocked the ball off off the table and into the front row of the audience. And oh, um, my goodness. it was <laughs> unbelievable. So like they had all the two commentators had a field day with that. Um, and that's just the kind of thing that in a million years you would never be able to plan for. And thankfully those two guys are so funny. Um, they made a whole, they made like a five minute thing out of it. It was great. But you know, that that's just one night and you never know. Um, but it's, it's a real testament to Richard Bean, who um, who is an extraordinary playwright and extremely funny, but also um, very trusting of of the actors to that he knows that he can say like, okay, here are some ideas of things you could say. Feel free to run around with this however you want, and I think that he's given them a lot of license. While the nap is, uh, as you described, a pretty complex show, uh, I know that you've done a number of other shows, including. Um, was it a six different Shakespeare shows put together in one? Was it, was it that? Yes. Uh, Yeah. I did that a few years ago. Tell us about what the most complex show is that you've designed. Oh my gosh. Um, what is the most complex show I've designed? Well, that, that show that you mentioned, that show, which is, was called tug of war and it was at Chicago Shakespeare. Um, it was directed by Barbara Gaines. It was, really a uh, a 12 hour show in which we took six shakespeare plays which were uh edward the second henry five henry six parts one two and three and richard the third and made it into a full uh sort of two-day performance so you would see it there's, there was a part one and a part two. Um, and then on top of that, uh, the entire show is filled with songs, um, songs that run the gamut from music by Pink, by Pink Floyd, by uh, Richie Havens, uh, Leonard Cohen, to Bach and Mahler and uh, all kinds of things. And I had this, and then also music that I wrote too, on top of that. Um, I had this four-piece rock band uh, that was bass, drums, cello, and guitar. Um, And so I had to adapt all those different styles of music, all those different sources of music, including my own, so that it would be played um, by this four-piece ensemble who were incredible musicians and were on stage for the entire 12 hours, either playing music that accompanied actors singing, or they created transition music, or we did underscore music, but they were a constant presence in the show. Um, And that was... That was incredibly difficult, but it ultimately really rewarding just to be able to say like, hey, I've now written a 12 hour Shakespeare rock and roll musical. <laughs> Are you familiar with And then with sound the... designed it. <laughs> Are you familiar <laughs> with uh, 
Taylor Mack, a 24-decade history of popular music. It's a 24-hour show that is done. I've heard it. I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. I would really like to. I, it sounds amazing. Uh, it, that it's, the description of the Shakespeare show sounds similar to this, but uh, it, it makes me, uh, uh, you know, I think that your Shakespeare show was done before that, but Taylor Max sounds very similar. I yeah. haven't seen it either, but folks that I know who have seen it said it's, it's just a religious experience for them to uh, watch the 24-hour show. Um, yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, if you can look outside of your own work, if you have... Do you have any chance to see other works when you're when you have shows you are not working on? Um, it's not often, but I try to. Like I mentioned before, I just saw "Ain't Too Proud to Beg" last Amundsen, week. Yeah, at the Amundsen, yeah, which was amazing. Um, um it was an unbelievable you, show. Uh, do you have a show out there that you know you like? Oh, I really want to get my hands on that show. What shows? Would you like to design? Do you have a show that you really admire that you wanted to mention? Oh, uh, wow. Gosh. Um, well, you know, one of the things that has been a goal of mine in my career is I, I'd like to do all of the plays by William Shakespeare. Uh, and oh, I have okay. three left. Um, Which ones? So uh, they are Coriolanus, Winter's Tale, and Two Gentlemen of Verona. So wow. if anybody okay. listening to this is, needs a sound designer for any of those productions, please feel free to reach out. I, I really would like to try and complete the entire canon of William Shakespeare if I can. Oh, that's awesome. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Um, uh, a couple of months back, we heard news from the FCC that uh, some of the white spectrum is going to be taken back by the FCC, which is forcing a wireless mic change. Uh, for yeah. many of the existing wireless mics, or have you run into this issue, or uh, yeah. you know, has this affected you at all? Yeah, it's a big deal. It's it's a really big deal, and unfortunately, I don't think most people uh, know about it. Uh, but essentially, what has happened is is that the federal government has licensed off various um, bandwidth that was previously un sort of unreserved. Uh, they have sold all of this bandwidth to uh, wireless cell phone companies. Um, and what it's done is it's significantly reduced the amount of bandwidth that is available uh, to wireless mic users, which, you know, uh, are generally used a lot in theater. Uh, it's a big deal for us. Um, and there's been a tremendous amount of um, support on terms of the uh, uh, the sound community to try and, you know, get this to be more aware. And we, you know, we've been asking theater producers to help us in this. It's, we, you know, there's been a lot of, um, we've been trying to put pressure on Congress and people like that who can help to help us to keep us from doing this. But I mean, I, I think if we, we don't really take care of this in the next five years, um, there's going to be a crisis in which musical productions may not be able to continue because there's not enough wireless bandwidth available for those microphones. Yeah. And um, companies who have spent uh, tens of thousands of dollars on wireless mic sets are going to find themselves 
either having interference with them or uh, they could actually get fined and replacing them as more as of tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Well, and that's actually that that is currently happening, not the so much the fines, but what with the most recent sale of the bandwidth, um, like I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day who's in San Diego and T-Mobile has just set up a brand new uh, facility down there and is expanding into the bandwidth that they previously used for my microphones. And so it's it's one of those things that you can't see and you can't you don't know about it. Like it's not a thing you would like. It's not going to be on the evening news or anything. But when and you go to turn on those microphones and they suddenly have a lot of interference and are no longer usable, um, then you're right. That is an expense that can cost tens of thousands of dollars in an emergency situation to replace. And that's tough. <laughs> so uh, as we wrap up here, uh, first of all, I want to, for a person like you, could you describe, do you have your... Uh, your planner uh, within reach that you could kind of describe uh, the last 12 months of your life? Are you on your planner? Oh You're on God. your phone. You're on your phone right now. Yeah, I can do it. I can do it. So, uh, you know, approximately. Pull up this on my computer. Okay. Hold on a second. Uh, what I'm going to ask All you right, about is uh, tell me about approximately how many flights you have flown in the last 12 months. Uh, oh, my gosh. Well, so according to. I just looked at this the other day. Uh, according to American Airlines, I've flown 84 flights since the beginning of this year, of uh, since January. So 10 months. So, and 10 I've months, already, 80. Yeah. Yeah. And how many and miles? I've flown about 100, 145,000 miles right now. I'll, I'll probably get to 200,000 before the year is over. Okay. And... Uh... Uh, how many days does that leave you away from your family and your hysterical children? <laughs> well, I don't we're getting to Huck in a point. second. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, I will say this. Um, I, I, I do something that is slightly insane, but I've dedicated myself to doing it. So since my children were born... I get one day off a week, which is Monday. Monday is the day off for most people working in theater. So every Monday, no matter where I am, I fly back to Los Angeles. And I usually get here around 11 o'clock. I do my laundry. I go pick the children up from school. I take them home. I help them with their homework. I give them dinner. I put them in bed. And I go back to the airport. And I fly the red eye back to wherever I have to be the next morning. Uh, usually it's in tech somewhere and I basically get off the wa the red eye and walk into tech. And I have done that almost every Monday, uh, for 16 years. Um, and that's just something I'm dedicated to because you're right without, without doing that, uh, I would have significantly less time with my children. And I'm really dedicated to making sure that even though I'm trying to pursue my dreams, uh, you know, and my passion of being a sound designer and composer for theater and film, I don't want to do that in ex as an exclusion of being a dad. So, um, so that's what I do every single Monday. And I also do things like I'm never work on my children's birthday. I always try to make sure I'm here for Halloween and be here for dance recitals and, you know, 
cut all sorts of crazy deals and take all sorts of crazy flights um, just so that I can be present as a dad. So that's that's really important to me, even though I'm I generally speaking and probably on the road as a sound designer, probably 250 or more days a year. So I want to point out for the listeners here that you don't work for a big sound design company who finds gigs for you and makes sure that you get paid and takes care of things like that. You are basically a small business owner. A- am I accurate in saying that? Yeah, that's correct. I um, I just uh, – I'm myself. I just work for myself. You You are a small business owner. That means that you have to find work. You have to come to an agreement on a contract. You have to sign the contract. You have to do the work. You have to clean up any disasters in the middle because, you know, these things happen. No matter what type of work that you do, uh, there are always unforeseen things. Then you have to get paid, and then you have to move on, and you have to find work again. That is very different than going to work for a 9 to 5 and uh, letting some other company deal with human resources and contracts and clients getting paid and things like that. And I'm imagining that the way in which you do that these days is a lot of word of mouth and reputation, but also I want to get to your social media personality. Your social, <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, it's really funny, but I think does your work on social media, does the your postings on social media, does that help you? continue to stay in contact with people and keep you at the front of their mind and keep you in business? Do you see yourself getting work through social media or is that just that it's just a reminder that Lindsay Jones, sound designer, um, music writer is still here? Well, I mean, I do get work work through social media. I, I, I mean, it does happen. And, um, you know, I, I wish I could say that I, I was totally calculating in my social media personality and that I try to come up with things specifically that will uh, make me seem more appealing to people to hire me. But, um, but honestly, really what it is is just things that uh, strike me as funny or, or appealing or interesting, and I put them out there. And I'm, I'm really grateful that people respond to it in the way that it is. I'm sure I would post it um, even if people didn't you find any interest in it, but, but I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I have to say that, you know, as a person who is, as you say, I'm totally a freelance person and I'm a hundred percent dependent upon word of mouth and, you know, gigs that sort of come in and out. Um, having something that is allows people to remain connected to me is really helpful and important. Um, but at the same time, social media is to a large degree, my actual social life. I mean, like I, I wish I could spend more time in in person with people who are my friends and my family. So I I rely on social media to stay uh, connected to them. It really is a, a large part of my social life. So it's worked out pretty well for me so far. Uh, the reason I bring this up is that, uh, it, your social media posts are a mix of professional things like the the phone the phone doesn't ring posts that I had mentioned earlier, and also talk about uh, some of your work and the shows that you're working on and your children, and they are written with such 
brevity and clarity that makes me think that you had uh, a possibility to have a writing career. Have you ever thought of writing as a career or have you done it before? Um, I, I thank you for saying that. I, um, I have done it before, not in terms of, I used to, in my twenties, I, I wrote a lot of, um, rock reviews. I wrote the album reviews and stuff like that for newspapers and stuff. Um, I've never written, um, anything in terms of fiction or a book or anything like that. Um, but, uh, I have had that feedback from a lot of people who are like, I find what you have to write interesting. And, um, so I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I do in the next few months have a plan to sort of begin to, um, maybe call together my writing and, and, um, create some sort of written book. I'm also working on this other project, um, one of the things that I don't do a lot on Facebook, but I do sometimes is I will have longer stories of things that happen to me. I, for whatever reason, I, uh, seem to attract a lot of, uh, people who are unusual or could be viewed as slightly crazy. Um, that's just like a thing that happens. Uh, I have learned to accept this and the people in my life also have learned to accept that this is just a, this is a common reality. Um, but I usually, I have like probably 20 to 25 stories of crazy things that have happened to me over my lifetime. And I'm sort of developing that, those stories into a show that I would perform. I'm going to be doing a a workshop of it in, uh, March in Delaware, um, (laughs) with, uh, with my friend Sandy Robbins directing, um, so I'm going to put that together and, and try and see if I can make a show out of it. And then God knows, I'll, maybe it'll, I'll just do it a few times in Delaware and it'll die there or something else will take place and hopefully it'll go on and I can present it elsewhere. And I'll, I'll let you know if that happens right now. It's, it's kind of terrifying the idea of me after almost 25 years, stepping back out on stage and becoming a performer again, but it's something I'm sort of looking into. Um, now, the point that I bring up about your social media is is that uh, it's extraordinary writing, and I encourage everybody to follow Lindsay on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we'll have links to everything in the show notes where you can follow Lindsay. But you can take the a story that is, you know, not the best of news, not really, uh, not really great news, but pointed out in a way that's ironic, like some of the greats have done, whether it be, you know, a a Jerry Seinfeld can talk about everyday life and it's hysterical. Uh, So let's leave listeners with this one story. Tell us about your house falling down. Oh God! Um, well, it didn't actually fall down. Thanks. Well, it did well, not yeah, fall down. no, cut to the chase there and, and spoil the ending. But <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so tell tell the listeners what happened and what what prompted that that section of your life and what would normally be me crying my eyes out to Facebook and Twitter that oh woe is me you turn this into probably one of the most followed posts on Facebook I've ever seen. Oh God, geez. Did I, did, I don't even have a memory of doing this now. I, I hope it's okay. Sure. I'm trying to remember which exact story you're referring to now. I, 
Is it the one where we had to move? Is that yeah. the thing? Or yeah, you had to that? move. Okay, yeah. You, you posted on Facebook, oh, we've got to move because our house is falling down. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. So, well, what happened was, um, so I had been working a lot. I had been working a, <laughs> a, a, a nonstop. And uh, I had really, I had set aside an entire month when I was just going to come back to Los Angeles and, and not to do anything. And I was going to like do self-improvement. I was going to like start an exercise program. I was going to read books. I was going to write books. I was going to do all sorts of things to sort of like really, you know, improve my entire life. That's what I had planned for myself in this month. So the, I get home the very first day I'm home. Um, there's uh, a call from the landlord and he said, she says, um, listen, there's going to be a guy coming by later today to, um, to look at the foundation of that house. They wanted to just double check it and look at it. And I said, okay, sure. That's fine. I'll be around all day. So then a few hours later, I'm in our kitchen and the sink is totally clogged up in the kitchen, uh, which is not great. So I call back the landlord and I say, hey, uh, I'm really sorry about this. Our kitchen sink is, is totally clogged up. Um, what should I do? And she says, well, call the plumber and have him come out and take a look at it. So the plumber comes out and he looks at it and he says, listen, man, I got to tell you, you know, uh, the pipes in this house, they're like from the 30s. Um, you know, these are really old pipes. I can clean out this drain, but it's going to clog again really soon because of how old these pipes are, you have to redo all of the plumbing in this house. And I said, well, how much is that going to cost? And he said, well, it's going to be about $15,000. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really bad. So I, uh, I called the landlord on the phone later that day. And I said, listen, I had the plumber out. I'm really sorry. You know, he's saying it's, you're going to need to spend about $15,000 replacing the plumbing. And the landlord said, well, you think that's bad? I just got off the phone with the foundation guy. He says the house is about to fall down, and it's going to cost me $150,000 to fix the house. And I was like, oh, wow. So what should we do? And she was like, well, the first thing is you got to move out of that house because it's about to fall down. The second thing is I'm not going to be a landlord anymore. I'm literally <laughs> going to give up right now. <laughs> So, so now all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's, it's December, which is not exactly a high time yeah. for real estate. And so it's like, I got to find us another place for my family and I to live. And so it was like, okay, day one of relaxation has just transformed into day one of we've got to get all of our belongings out of this house before it falls down on top of us. Um, and so then I w went straight into like, let's try and find a new place to move. Let's, we found a place. Then it was like, okay, we got to pack everything up. And, you know, every day it's like, okay, I can feel the house slanting a little bit. We got to get out of here. How soon can we get out of here? <laughs> um, so we actually managed to load up all of our belongings, get out of the house before the plumbing exploded and, and before the house fell over. And now we live in a new place and it's, we're all much happier and we like everything about it. So it all worked out great in the end. So that was my vacation. That, that month was my vacation of, of panic basically. And I think that was the universe basically telling me don't take a vacation.
Excellent. All right. So that is uh, a little insight into uh, uh, spending some time with Lindsay Jones, uh, who is unique music and sound design. We, Lindsay, I can't tell you how much I thank you for this because I know what your schedule is like. And when I had touched base with you and said, hey, can we talk for an hour? I knew that was a big ask, and I really appreciate you joining us on Broadway Radio because I think it's a really important insight to people who don't know that there is this job called sound design and they could do it for a living and be involved with theater in many many ways that are not just the actor in front of the lights. I will have uh, links to all of Lindsay's contact information in the show notes in case you are producing some Shakespearean plays and would like him to come in or doing anything else. Or if you're producing a Broadway show and you want Lindsay to come in, we'll have all of his contact there as well. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. James, thank you so much for having me. I I so appreciate it. This has been a wonderful talk. And and I really, really appreciate your interest in in all facets of theater. I think it's a... it's a really it's a really valuable thing for your listeners, but I also, as one of those people, I really deeply appreciate your interest in trying to shine a light on people like that.